Tonight, straight from the source, it's a date. Trump set for trial in the classified documents case, but could he have the nomination locked up before a jury has even been seated? Meanwhile, Vice President Harris going scorched earth in Florida today, not mentioning Governor Ron DeSantis by name, but accusing him of, quote, gaslighting after his state revised its school lesson plans, arguing that some black people benefited from slavery. And there are legends, and then there is Tony Bennett, a crooner for the ages who said he never worked a day in his life because he loved performing so much. And the world loved him right back. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. May 20th, 2024. It is somewhere between what the special counsel pushed for in the classified documents case and what Trump's legal team wanted. And now Judge Eileen Cannon is splitting the difference. Donald Trump could be going to trial while he is on the campaign trail, multiple times actually. In January, the day of the Iowa caucuses, his civil defamation case begins. His hush money's trial here in New York starts 10 days after Super Tuesday, when we could have a pretty good idea by then if he's going to be the Republican nominee. And if his classified documents trial starts in mid-May, as it is scheduled today by Judge Cannon, there's a possibility that Trump could have effectively clinched the nomination by then. That was the month he did so in 2016. And of course, we are still waiting to see if he'll be indicted in the January 6th case after he got a target letter last Sunday. Here's what his new attorney in that case said today. There's no need to appear in front of any grand jury right now. President Trump did absolutely nothing wrong. He's done nothing criminal. When he saw all these election discrepancies and irregularities going on, he did what any president was required to do. John Laro also says the first thing that he'll ask for are cameras in the courtroom. But the odds of that happening, we are told, are pretty much close to zero. They don't allow cameras in federal courtrooms. Something I should note, given the Trump team fought to have fought against having cameras in the courtroom when he was arraigned here in New York in that hush money case. Joining me here tonight is Republican Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado here on set. Thank you for being here in New York with us, Congressman. You have said previously that you couldn't vote for Trump if he was a convicted felon. But now the idea that this case, this documents case, is going to be pushed back, uh, or at least right now it's scheduled to start in mid-May, that's after your state's primary. What do you what do? You do? Well, I, I don't publicly take any position uh, on, on who I'm going to vote for uh, anyway, but uh, I will not endorse probably until after the Colorado primary. But could you support Trump with the idea of not knowing whether or not he is going to be a convicted felon that you said you wouldn't support? Yeah, as I said, I'm not going to support anybody uh, for a period of time. Do you believe it's in the best interest for voters if they go to cast their ballots and Trump hasn't gone to trial yet? Um, no, I don't think it's in the best interest of voters. I, I think there should be uh, some knowledge. Uh, I think the facts that come out of trial are going to be relevant to their decision. I think the uh, the idea that uh, he may be convicted, uh, although I think uh, a lot of this generates a lot of sympathy uh, at this point among Republican primary voters. We've seen how his poll numbers have gone up. His team was arguing to push this past the November 2024 election. Uh, do you think more than a year is enough time to be able to bring that to, to trial and to have that case, given you're a former federal prosecutor? 
Yeah, I think this is a reasonable trial date. I, I also suspect we haven't heard the last about continuances. Uh, if one of his attorneys decides uh, to withdraw, uh, then you've got to have a uh, you know a security clearance for another attorney. You've got to have a uh, another attorney get up to speed. So uh, there's a lot of different ways that a possible continuance could play out. Yeah, he also just got this target letter in January 6th. You know, he hasn't been indicted yet. We're waiting to see if he ultimately will be. But if he is, do you think those would be the most serious charges that he's facing? Um, I think all the charges are serious, depending on how serious the jury takes them. But I do think that uh, the documents case is probably a, a very serious uh, case against him. I, I just don't know enough about the January 6th uh, charges at this point. You you were there that day. You voted to certify President Biden's election. I should know when some of your Republican colleagues did not. I mean, do you believe that there is accountability for Trump if he is charged in this case? Well, not only was I there, I was sitting on the floor as glass was breaking and having no idea really whether there were 10 people outside or or a thousand people outside. Um, I I think that the evidence uh, has to be very clear that President Trump was behind what those rioters did, not just that he could have stopped it at some point, but that he actually um, had the motivation and um, had some kind of conversations with him, which I don't think we know about just yet. And what about obstructing an official proceeding? We know that's an avenue that Jack Smith has been pursuing. Trump's mindset about knowing that he lost that election and still pushing ahead with the the crazy avenues that he did try. Well, first, I don't, I'm not sure that his mindset was that he lost the election. And secondly, there's certainly a lot of people around him that told him he lost the election. Uh, but, but secondly, uh, uh, did he uh, actually cause those rioters to come up from the mall and, and storm the Capitol? That's, that's the issue I think they have to prove at the at trial. Given you were there that day, what do you think when, when you hear how, not only how Trump describes January 6th, but, you know, whitewashing it, saying it was a love fest, saying that they were peaceful patriots there, Ron DeSantis today saying it wasn't an insurrection? Yeah, I don't believe it was an insurrection either. Uh, I, I guarantee you that 90% of those people own guns in their home and not one of them brought a gun to the Capitol. Uh, it was a riot. Uh, it was disruptive. It stopped the proceedings for a matter of hours. Um, calling it an insurrection to me is is really rhetoric that rises above the actual facts. Well, we know that there were weapons. Some of them were stashed in Virginia, I believe, with Proud Boys and whatnot. But from what you've seen, do you believe that Trump is being treated fairly by the special counsel? That's the real question, I think, that, that uh, Republican primary voters are going to have to decide. We're talking about, uh, and, and I hear this from my constituents, in Colorado. We're talking about potentially four different indictments in four different states. And John Gotti didn't have four indictments. Uh, Al Capone didn't have four indictments. Uh, And and, uh, Donald Trump is not a crime family leader. He was president of the United States. So I think that there's really going to be a pushback among voters as to the level of scrutiny that Donald Trump is under. Well, I know you disagree with the New York case, for example, the Manhattan case. You're no, you don't think that one's... But the other aspects of this, I mean, the documents case, you have so, told me before you believe that was self-inflicted. I mean, how much legal baggage is... Tr- too much legal baggage, do you think, for Republican primary voters? Well, I think the, the key is the Department of Justice, and I was at both at the Department of Justice and at the U.S. Attorney's Office during my time as a federal prosecutor. I think the Department of Justice has to figure out which is their best case and bring it. And, and if you have, uh, you know, uh, seven different states where uh, President Trump was challenging the electoral uh, count, uh, you can't have seven different district attorneys or more from each state bringing charges. I, th- I think that that looks excessive. Last question. On Capitol Hill, we saw this effort this week, this idea of Kevin McCarthy having to deny that he promised Trump he would bring a vote to the House floor to expunge 
Trump's two impeachments, which I, I'm not even sure if it's you can actually do that. Uh, do you think that's a wise move? Well, it's, it's probably wise for the Republican base. It's, it's not wise in terms of constitutional history. It's not wise in terms of, of precedent uh, that it sets. Uh, the Senate expunged when they voted not to impeach. And, and that's, that's but it's really... still it's still on the record. I mean, would would, even, would it even pass in a Republican-controlled House? But what record? You don't go to a courthouse to look up a record. In this case, it's just a public record. He was impeached by the House. He was acquitted by the Senate. Yeah. So do you think that Kevin McCarthy should not pursue that? Oh, I don't care. I, I mean, I will vote for it because it's... it's uh, you well, would vote to expunge it? Oh, sure. Why? Sure, but because it has no, it makes no difference. And, and there's a whole lot of Republican voters who are sitting out there saying to themselves, uh, you know, uh, why, why should President Trump have been, uh, why should he have this on his record? The record's going to exist one way or the other. But why would you vote to expunge it if you're saying you don't even know if it's constitutional to do that? Well, it's not unconstitutional. It's, it, what I'm saying is there's no, nowhere in the Constitution where it talks about expungement. So it is, it is just a matter of, uh, it's almost like a sense of Congress. We're having a vote on a sense of Congress that he should not have been impeached. I voted against both impeachments. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us tonight. And for more on this, I want to also bring in our two legal analysts to dig into that new trial date. We have CNN senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney Ellie Honig and defense attorney and former federal prosecutor Shan Wu. Ellie, I'll start with you. I mean, we don't often see trial dates get moved up. They usually just get pushed more. Do you think it's going to stick with that mid-May 2024 date? No, I think I do not think it will stick in May. I think it will be pushed back. But the big question is, will it be pushed back all the way past the election? But here's why I don't think the May 2024 date will hold. If you look at the judge's order, there are 33 intermediate deadlines between now and May. Anytime any one of them gets moved, it's a chain reaction, and all the others get moved back. And I'll give you one specific example. And Chan, as a defense lawyer, I think you'll, you'll be with me on this. The judge gives the parties five weeks to bring their motions and then have them decided. There are going to be many complicated motions here. He's going to challenge the search warrant. That's a big motion. He's going to challenge the use of attorney-client communications. Yep. That's a big motion. No way do they get these issues briefed and decided in five weeks. So I do think we'll see some slippage. I don't know if it'll push up all the way past the election. Okay, so we'll wait to see. Shan, this is the first big decision that we saw from Judge Cannon. Obviously, everyone has noted she's a Trump appointee from 2020. I mean, how did you read that she didn't give Jack Smith's team what they wanted, but she also didn't give Trump's legal team what they wanted? Yeah, this was kind of a no-brainer decision for her. I mean, very easy for her to play the role of I'm splitting the two sides in the middle. No one's happy. and makes her look reasonable. Um, but I agree with Ellie. There's so much room for slippage. I mean, I could get this case delayed in my sleep. <laughs> I mean, it's just really easy with all these different deadlines. And there's some real substance in, in terms of what they're questioning in terms of litigation for pretrial motions. There's no way that date's going to hold. Okay. And so I've been talking to Trump's people all day. They, they viewed this as a huge victory for them. Is it a huge victory given that Shan could get it delayed in his sleep? We'll see if Todd Blanche can. I mean, I don't know if they're as good as Shan. Um, <laughs> it's still a victory. <laughs> uh, and Todd Blanche is a good lawyer, too, I should say. He used to work with him. Very good. Maybe as good as you. Um, it's a win for Trump's team. It's not a complete win. It's like if, if in football, if you had the ball at the 50-yard line and completed a 40-yard pass. You haven't scored yet, but you're right on the brink. Because all they have to do now is get really one substantial adjournment because there is no realistic way this case is going to be tried in October 2024, September 2024, August 2024. That is just too close to the election. If they get this pushed 60 more days, you're into that danger zone and it's got to flip to after the election. And we're talking about the documents case. I should yes. note in the January 6th case, Trump has brought on a new attorney, uh, John Lauro, that is supposed to be representing him. I'm told in that case he's going to be mm -hmm. the lead attorney. He was on television today and he said... 
Uh, the reason Trump didn't take Jack Smith up, up on his offer to go before the grand jury is because he did nothing wrong and nothing criminal, essentially saying that there was nothing wrong with Trump asking for an audit of the election. But I mean, obviously, it went much further than that. Is that is that an argument he could use in court? Um, it's an argument he can use in court more in his closing argument. He'll have to actually find some evidence to support it. Otherwise, there's going to be a bunch of hot wind that he's blown there in court. I think his point about the grand jury, there's some political spin going on there, trying to say he wasn't forced to go because he didn't do anything wrong. Very few good defense lawyers are going to put their client in front of the grand jury because it's just an opportunity for disaster. So it's no surprise at all that he didn't go before the grand jury. What we don't know, because we haven't seen the actual target letter, is whether they also gave them the opportunity to present your best arguments. Any arguments you want to make on writing to us, verbally, other documents, perspectives you want us to consider, we don't know if that happened. Yeah, we're, we haven't seen that target letter. We haven't right. even actually seen what the charges are that they listed in that target letter. Last thing, John Lara said the first thing he's going to do is ask for cameras to be in the courtroom. I mean, they clearly think that Trump is getting indicted, that there yeah. is going to be a case here. Is there any chance of that happening? There is no no chance at all because the federal courts are so stuck in their ways. I, if I can get on my soapbox for a second, the federal courts need to get over themselves. I practiced there for many years. They have this notion that it would be somehow undignified to bring in cameras. Look, we live in, it's 2023. If we don't have cameras in that courtroom, the way we're going to be covering that trial is we're going to have reporters running in and out trying to relay what happened. We're going to get a written transcript after each trial day, and we're going to be looking at sketch drawings done by courtroom artists. There's no call for that in 2023. We need to see this. So you agree with Trump's attorneys? I agree with Trump's attorneys on that, and I agree they're not going to win. I do, too. (laughs) Supreme Court, too. Put cameras in the Supreme Court. Ellie, Shan, Congressman, thank you all for being here. Uh, Of course, we got more for you, Ellie. He'll be back with us later on. Up next, Vice President Kamala Harris went to Ron DeSantis' home turf today and delivered a scathing response of his state's new black history curriculum. She says it's replacing history with lies. This is unnecessary to debate whether enslaved people benefited from slavery. Are you kidding me? And JFK's grandson taking on his cousin, RFK Jr., for the conspiracy theories that he has been spouting, accusing him of disgracing the family name for personal gain. Quote, they want to replace history with lies. That is what Vice President Harris said when she was accusing extremists of doing that after the Florida Board of Education approved a revised black history curriculum. It includes instruction that enslaved people could have benefited from the skills that they learned. So we know the history. And let us not let these politicians who are trying to divide our country win. Because you see, what they are doing, what they are doing is they are creating these unnecessary debates. This is unnecessary to debate whether enslaved people benefited from slavery. Are you kidding me? Florida governor and 2024 presidential candidate Ron DeSantis responded, saying he wasn't involved in creating these new standards, but he defended that part about slaves potentially benefiting from skills that they learned. I think what they're doing is I think that they're probably going to show um, some of the folks that eventually parlayed, uh, you know, being a blacksmith into into doing things later later in life. 
Joining me now to discuss Scott Jennings, former aide to Senator Mitch McConnell and President George W. Bush, and the former White House Communications Director for President Biden, and CNN's newest contributor, Kate Bedingfield. So, Kate, welcome. I'm Thank glad you. this is your inaugural debut. As am I. Thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me, Caitlin. You'll be joining us many more times. Scott, let me start with you, though. I mean, you hear what Governor DeSantis said. He was uh, saying, you know, Harris shouldn't come into Florida and essentially criticize this changed curriculum. What do you make of what he said? Well, he's right because she's lying about what happened here. And this is, you know, it's amazing how fast something went from the fever swamps of the left-wing Twitterverse to the vice president's office to Florida for this speech. I've read the standards. I downloaded an analysis of the curriculum in every instance where the word slave was used. And I read this statement from the African-American scholars who wrote the standards, who strongly refute everything she said today. So this is a hyper-partisan attempt to mislead people They do it all the time to Ron DeSantis. They're doing it again. I don't buy it. She was arguing that schools, that students would be better prepared if these things, if these historical crimes weren't glossed over. I mean, this was a pretty quickly scheduled trip, we're told, by Vice President Harris. She went into Florida. She didn't mention DeSantis by name. Uh, You worked in the White House until just recently. I mean, what's your insight of the White House's strategizing on this? Well, she didn't mention DeSantis by name, but you heard him defensively respond, which tells you that he knows there's something here that he has to defend from. So I would respectfully say to Scott, you know, in fact, what the vice president did was go down and pick a fight that is really smart for the White House to pick. And it's a it's a really good use of Vice President Harris. She's at her best when she's making a forceful case, when she's making this really fundamental argument that's really key to the way President Biden frankly, intends to run for re-election in 2024, which is about protecting freedom. It's about uh, advancing, uh, making sure that uh, families have what they need on their table. It's not about these divisive, exclusive, exclusionary culture wars. And so for the White House to recognize that, to scramble quickly to send Vice President Harris to give this really powerful speech, uh, I think shows that they are really seizing on an opportunity to make this a contrast. Because at the end of the day, the communications challenge for the re-election campaign is making this a choice and driving that contrast between what President Biden and Vice President Harris believe and what the Republicans believe. As a matter of strategy and tactics, this is how Ron DeSantis got popular in the Republican Party in the first place. National Democrat politicians and national media lying about something he was doing in Florida. It started with COVID. Now we're on to this thing. So as a matter of political strategy, you say it works for Harris and Biden, I guess. It's going to work for Ron DeSantis being attacked by Kamala Harris in Florida. This is an elevating thing for him to defend something in which she's so clearly in the wrong, in my opinion. But I would say, if I could just add one point, look yeah. at the look at the 2022 midterms. Look at the attempt by Republicans across the country, Trump Republicans, DeSantis Republicans, to drive these cultural issues, to drive arguments about retracting your right to vote, about limiting your ability uh, to get health care in this country. I mean, making these really cultural, uh, inflammatory arguments did not yield good results for Republicans in 2022. Well, they yielded perfectly fine results for Ron DeSantis in Florida, who won by 20 points. And I assume they're going to yield pretty good results in the context of a Republican primary, which is what he cares about right now. But can we talk about that? Because he is, I mean, well, he does care about the Republican primary right now. He's been slipping in the polls. And now he is kind of setting his sights on Bud Light, going after their parent company. As today, he wrote in this letter to uh, basically the person who handles state pensions in Florida and said, suggested that the parent company of Bud Light had breached their legal duties owed to its shareholders as a result of its decision, I'm quoting this letter now, to associate its Bud Light brand with radical social ideologies and basically sending that to the state's pension fund manager and suggesting that he should open up, uh, that they should reevaluate the business that they do with them. I mean, 
Is that DeSantis's reset of his campaign to continue leaning into these kinds of issues? Well, I think the it is a continuation of something he's been at the forefront of, which is uh, this new muscular conservatism where Republicans aren't content to just let things happen. They want their elected officials to use their power to take on what they see is essentially being surrounded by radical liberalism in every institution, whether that's corporations or universities or military. You know, we saw that in the House recently. And so DeSantis has really been one of, one of the people at the forefront of this. He's going to keep doing it. This is a continuation of that. And you hear this phrase sometimes in the party these days. Do you know what time it is? This is like what it means to know what time it is. Use your office to try to fight back against cultural liberalism. <laughs> okay, we'll leave that part there. Uh, let's talk about RFK Jr. I mean, he had this hearing, which we talked about at length last night. We talked about how he was invited by Republicans to go on Capitol Hill and to testify, talking about censorship. Today, the grandson of JFK, Jack Schlossberg, is coming out and criticizing him and saying that he is essentially disgracing their family name. He's trading in on Camelot, celebrity, conspiracy theories, and conflict for personal gain and fame. I've listened to him. I know him. I have no idea why anyone thinks he should be president. What I do know is his candidacy is an embarrassment. The problem is RFK is polling. I mean, it's dropped some since people have been highlighting his conspiracy theories, but he's polling at 20-ish percent, 10 to 20 percent. I'll generalize it. Well, I guess, first of all, I would say no one can get you like your family, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. I'd go to that Thanksgiving. Yikes. Um, but I, in all seriousness, I think, um, you know, the strategy that uh, the campaign has employed, the Biden campaign has employed, um, uh, is to let people learn more about Robert F. Kennedy. And the more they do, the more they dislike him. You say he's polling, but this polling has dropped precipitously since April. He's polling a much lower rate than he was in April. Uh, you know, he Republicans made a, an effort to bring him in front of uh, the House to testify this week. And I think generally when you have to start your testimony with I've never been a racist or an anti-Semite, that's probably not going well for you. But so, he did raise five million dollars. His super PAC that is backing him raised five million dollars yesterday. He's not going to be the nominee. Uh, and he is a terrible person. But of course, Republicans have thought that for a long time. D Democrats are just now figuring it out because he's running against Joe Biden. What he is is a repository for all of the discontent with Biden actually running. I mean, there's a ton of Democrats that don't want Joe Biden to run free election. They're, they would jump on any other person. I mean, even Marianne Williamson's grabbing some share of the vote. But Republicans invited him yesterday. Yeah, they're trolling Joe Biden. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we do a lot of governing by trolling these days. And that was use of the strategy of trolling. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's, I don't want to be associated with RFK Jr. This guy's been, a, I don't old enough to remember when he was claiming that George W. Bush rewired the voting machines in Ohio in 2004. He's been a crank and a crackpot for a long time. It's just now he's presenting a political problem for the White House. Governing by trolling. I think I missed that in the Constitution. <laughs> Scott Jennings, Kate Bedingfield, welcome to CNN. Thank you Thank both you. for being here on Friday night. Thank you. He was an icon and an American treasure. Tony Bennett is gone after gifting the world with his music for eight decades. Anderson Cooper is going to join us next. He was at one of his last concerts. Irreplaceable and an American classic. Tony Bennett's remarkable, remarkable life is being remembered today. The beloved singer died this morning at 96 after a years-long battle with Alzheimer's. Frank Sinatra called him, quote, the best in the business. He was a mentor to him. His iconic ballads, like I Left My Heart in San Francisco, 
truly transcended generations. I left my heart. San Francisco. Tony Bennett was also a White House favorite. He performed for 11 presidents on both sides of the aisle during a legendary career. But he got his start here in New York, singing in restaurants. He once said that helping people forget their problems just for an hour was a noble job. When did you say to yourself, I want to be, I want to sing for a living? Well, I have a charmed life because I've always known what I wanted to do. I've always had a passion to sing and paint, and I've, I've never questioned it. Never questioned it. His last public performance was in 2021, when he appeared with Lady Gaga at New York's Radio City Music Hall. Anderson Cooper reported on the moments leading up to that spectacular show, where Bennett's wife, Susan, reminded him he was about to perform. We're going to watch Lady Gaga's set. Right. And then you're going to sing. Okay? Mm-hmm. How many songs am I singing? I'll tell you what you're going to sing. When it was time, they walked toward the stage together. Then the lights went out and the curtain went up. Anderson joins me now. Anderson, I mean, to watch that moment and to see, you know, Susan had said she was worried that they weren't really sure what would happen when he got on stage. And to see that big smile on his face, he just raises his hands in amazement when he sees the crowd. I mean, what's it what was it like to watch that? Yeah, I got to watch it from the wings and be there as he went out. It was uh, incredible. You know, the wow was a word that in, you know, in the the midst of the ravages of the disease, that was a word he used a lot to sort of, you know, get through conversations. He could say, wow, there were, there were phrases he used. Um, but that wow was, that was a different kind of a wow. I mean, you could tell he heard the love of the audience, 6,000 seats. He played for three nights with Gaga. Um, it, it was just incredible. And you're right. There were a lot of people in the circle of Tony, uh, you know, his son, Danny, who did incredible things for his career, his manager, his wife, Susan, he mentioned, is just an extraordinary caregiver and, and partner in, in his life and uh, at the end of his life and his career. But uh, pe- there were a lot of people who weren't sure what was going to happen when that curtain opened. And would he suddenly not be able to do it? And as soon as that it happened and the music played and you heard the love from the audience, he was he was locked in. It was incredible. Yeah, I know you said he got 20, at least 20 standing ovations that night. It, as I watched, as I rewatched your reporting this morning, it, it kind of broke my heart because just a few days later, you were with him on his daily walk in Central Park and he didn't even remember playing that show. And I mean, just anyone who has knows someone who has dealt with Alzheimer's understands that, I think, and just seeing him dealing with that disease at the same time that when he's on stage, you know, he's the Tony Bennett again. And, you know, he, yeah, it was, he was sitting on the, on a bench that he often sat in with Susan uh, just across from his apartment. And I sat down with him and, you know, there were people coming by and saying, hello, Tony, and, and great to see you. And, you, do, you know, you're doing great. And um, yeah, I said what, you know, I mentioned the, sh- the show the, the, the previous night and he didn't know what I was talking about. And, uh, he was very gracious about it. I said, you were amazing. And he said, oh, thank you very much. But, um, but you know, that is 
that's just the reality of the disease. And it's something he had been living with and Susan and his whole family had been living with for a long time. But but they were able to keep him alive, not just physically, but alive in doing exactly what he always loved to do, as you said, about seven more than 70 year career. Um, and, and all during COVID, they when there were no shows, he was doing performances in his living room to Susan and to you know anybody who might be there, uh, other caregivers. I mean, um, it, it's an it is a sad day and it's a sad, horrible, horrible illness, as so many too many families know. But um, but but you know one of the I talked to to Tony's doctor today, Gayatri Devi, who's a remarkable neurologist in New York, and, and one of the things she said is you know it shows what is possible that even someone with the ravages of, of Alzheimer's, they, they, they're, they're, there can be a life and there can be joy and there can be moments uh, like Tony had. And, and uh, they were very blessed. Yeah, it was amazing also how the doctor said, you know, him going on stage and being able to do that or just performing, period, was better than any kind of treatment or any medicine that he was on. Mm -hmm. I mean, his life was just amazing. I mean, he really... He saw so much. I mean, he lived history. He grew up here in New York, singing in restaurants. He was drafted in World War II. I mean, he he did the march from Selma to Montgomery and my home state of Alabama. And he just had, he's one of those figures who just saw so much in his life. Yeah, and listen, his mom worked, you know, as a seamstress, uh, doing extra jobs just to to help support the family. His dad had come from Italy. She was of Italian descent as well. He dropped out of high school, um, you know, needed to to work and and get going with his life. Uh, took part in the war. I mean, he not only did he f fight in the war in World War II, he took part in the liberation of one of the the sub camps of Dachau. It's which, you know, he was on the right side of history for a very very long time and. He didn't, you know, he, he had friends on all sides of the political aisle, um, but he, you know, he certainly was committed to the civil rights movement and, and committed to justice. Yeah, and you talked about Duke Ellington inspiring that. Anderson, it's, it's amazing to look back on that final performance. Thank you for, for sharing with that, that with us tonight. Well, thanks for having me. Up next, we're going to speak to one of Tony Bennett's many collaborators. He worked with so many people throughout that long career. This is a musician who knew him for 30 years and shares a Grammy with him as well. That's next. Tonight, we are remembering the legendary performer, the one and only Tony Bennett, who brought so much joy with his voice and, as we were just noting, lived such an extraordinary life. President Biden said it well in a tribute today, quote, Along the way, he lived history. He helped liberate prisoners at a subcamp of Dachau. He joined the 1965 Civil Rights March from Selma to Montgomery. He performed for Nelson Mandela, JFK, Queen Elizabeth II. Joining me now is someone who also performed with him and knew Tony Bennett for 30 years and played with him, jazz pianist Bill Charlap. His recording with Bennett, I should note, won a Grammy in 2015. And thank you for being here. I'm sorry that it's on a day of uh, this news about your friend, but you're the best person to talk about this with. And we were looking at videos of you and Tony playing together. There's this one from 2015. It's obviously an iconic rendition of the way you look tonight. I want to share it with our audience. Breathless charm Won't you please arrange it Cause 
I love you Just the way you look tonight What are you thinking about? It's not just iconic, it's definitive. And that's what he wanted to do. When he sang something, he wanted it to be definitive. He put his stamp on it in that way. It was so warm and so soulful. That's what With Tony Bennett word. was. Yeah. Your and you just met when he, he had asked you to fill in, and then the two of you became friends. Well, at first, he came and heard me play at a club that I used to play when I was, well, this is about 30 years ago or more. I was playing solo piano, and he came in with Helen Keene, who had been Bill Evans' manager. Mm -hmm. And he just came in to listen. He drew a sketch of me. He gave it to me. I was meeting one of my heroes. A little later, he came to a club where I was playing, and uh, the maitre d' said, uh, Mr. Bennett is here. He'd like to talk to you. I came downstairs. He said that Ralph Sharon, his pianist of oh, 40 years, couldn't make a couple of the engagements they had. Would I play with him? Of course I would. And I was delighted. And we became very good friends. Did you even think twice about it? Oh, no. <laughs> of course not. I love one thing you said, that um, you're walking down the streets of New York with him. He was New York. He was New York. And you know... Uh, there was a wonderful feeling when you would walk down the street with him because, of course, everybody recognized him. Mm -hmm. And he was so open to everybody. He loved life. He loved people. He loved communicating. And he was always uh, happy to greet people. And he would look you right in the eye. And he was really listening. And he was interested in you. And he had that kind of, well, you know, with music or any art... We all feel about something that we love, that we're the only one that really feels it that very special way. He could do that in an audience of 15,000 people mm -hmm. and make you feel like you were the one. And it was real. He was singing right to you, 15,000 people at a time. You know, I was reading the New York Times obituary of him and it said... You, when you look through his coverage, you can't find anything bad that anyone ever said about him, hardly. The New York Times says, you know, he still loved it. It said, with the possible exception of his former wives, everyone, it seemed, loved Tony Bennett. Well, he what loved What made him life. so lovable? What made him so lovable? That every day was fresh for him. That he loved life. That he was elegant and communicative. And... Uh, you know, there's something else I'm thinking about when I was listening to him, listening to him paint that beautiful picture with the song. Tony Bennett was a very accomplished painter. I mean, he was really a serious painter. And, oh, he taught me all kinds of things about art, about the painters that he loved, John Singer Sargent and Soroya and Zorn. And when he sang... He was kind of using a paintbrush. You know, you could feel the oil paint. You could see it. You could feel the texture, the way that he colored, uh, the way that he would color the words, the way he would tell the story and sing the song and phrase it, the rhythms that he used, the notes that he chose. 
it was like a painter. It had that kind of beauty to it. That's really lovely. Yeah. Did he ever give you any advice or pearls of wisdom or anything like that that you remember? Well, sure. There were many. Uh, <laughs> one particularly was something that he said about nervousness. He said, there's nothing wrong with feeling nervous. If you're not nervous, it means you don't care. Oh, that's good. Even better to say it like this. I think he said it more like this. <laughs> to be nervous means that you do care. And he really cared. He wanted to give the best of him to his audience and to the people that he loved and cared about. Uh, something else that he told me about that Fred Astaire told him, he said, if you have a perfect show, take out one third. <laughs> In other words, the eraser is a great composer's tool. It's yeah. a great artist's tool. Being able to edit yourself, being able to think that way. And that shows real humility. Um, something else I remember he said, listen to the applause, listen to how uh, between the songs, when it gets to its peak, right when it starts to diminish, start the next song. Then you can take the audience on a journey in that way. <laughs> Things like that. But I'll tell you a moment that I really remember uh, above many other moments. Um, I was in the recording studio with him. We were recording songs of Jerome Kern and we were recording with my trio, with Kenny Washington and Peter Washington, drums and bass, all together uh, no headphones, everybody in the same room, so it's real time and real recording. Um, and we were doing the song, They Didn't Believe Me, an iconic popular song by Jerome Kern, lyrics by Herbert Reynolds. Now this song is the ultimate in romance and a really important American popular song in the way that it says, and when I tell them, and I'm certainly gonna tell them, that's really American. But what was happening is that we were in the studio, he was standing in the middle of the room, the uh, studio was right in front of us, the recording booth that is. His son Day was sitting at the recording, uh, at the recording console and Susan Bennett was standing right there behind the glass, about 10 feet away. We started the take, he looked directly at her and he sang the whole song right to Susan. Oh. And that's the take that's on the album. So that's it was beautiful. direct. It was a story. And he was singing right to you. And in that case, he was singing right to her. And it was a really beautiful moment. That is beautiful. And thank you for sharing those beautiful memories with us tonight. Thank I'm you. so glad to be here with you. And the world misses Tony Bennett. Absolutely. And I miss Tony Bennett. To be nervous means you care. I love that. Mm. Keep that with me. We'll be right back. Remembering Tony Bennett. The box office is seeing pink this weekend. Barbie is shaping up to be one of the biggest movies in years. Politicians predictably jumping in her dream car. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer introduced Little Gretch on Twitter, a play on her nickname, Big Gretch. Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Republicans on Capitol Hill do the same. I should note, Barbie is being released by Warner Brothers, same parent company as CNN. Harry Anton joins me now. Harry, 
What are the Barbie stats that you have been crunching for us? I know, right? And I'm, I want to note that I'm wearing the pink. Uh, so there we it's go. Be a, needs to be a pink blazer next uh, time. I, you know, I had a pink shirt, but it turns out it's in the dry cleaner. Look, I think there are a number of things we should note about Barbie, right? First, her full name is Barbara. And when Barbie was introduced, right, uh, Barbie, Barbara, was such a popular name. Now it's not a popular name at all. But there are other things that have changed in terms of Barbie. When it first came out, accounting for inflation, a Barbie doll cost a little bit over $30. Now you can get a basic Barbie doll for only about $6, so it's much more affordable. How about this? Barbie is two years older than her beau, Ken. She's a trailblazer in that way. When, <laughs> when Barbie was first introduced to Ken, only about 14% of uh, women were older than the men in the relationships. Now that's up over 20%, okay? How about how many Barbie dolls have been sold worldwide? It's over a billion, over a billion. A 1992 doll, her long-haired Barbie, was in fact the best-sold Barbie. Hmm. One other little nugget about Barbie, she's had over 250 occupations in her life. She's done everything. She's been a doctor. She's been a chef. She's been an astronaut. She's been a firefighter. She's been everything. A journalist. She's been a journalist. She's truly a trailblazer. Has she ever been a data reporter there? Uh, you know, actually, I've been told that the reason why I'm not chief data reporter is because <laughs> Barbie is coming along to be chief data reporter. I mean, it is amazing, though, to look at how the brand has progressed. And now they're also kind of trying to change the narrative here with the movie, too. Yeah, it's supposedly, you know, a truly the idea of Barbie being a feminist hero. And I will tell you this. I have not seen Barbie, but I actually do want to see it. It looks really funny to me. Okay, good. Well, get your pink blazer from the uh, dry cleaner. I, I, I will work on that next time. Harry and Tin, thank, thank you. you for those numbers, thank as always. And thank you so much for joining us tonight and every night this week. Who's Talking to Chris Wallace with guest Matt Damon and Laura Linney up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash country. Max subscription required.